ThatCast Network presents The Beaver Buzz, a look inside Oregon State Athletics with your host, Bob Lundeberg. Welcome, everybody, to the Beaver Buzz podcast, part of the ThatCast podcast network. This is your host, Bob Lundeberg, finally back with a new episode for you guys. For those of you who did not catch uh, my last episode back in the heart of fall camp, I got married in August and then moved over Labor Day weekend. So it's been a pretty busy few weeks, uh, to say the least. The good news is I'm all uh, settled in now and ready to get back to cranking out uh, weekly episodes for you guys on all things Oregon State sports. To break down last weekend's heartbreaking uh, defeat at Hawaii, Andrew Hobner is going to join today's show. Andrew is a sports director for KEZI in Eugene, and uh, Andrew was was on the scene in Hawaii as Oregon State's offense you know, really just kind of fell apart in the second half in what was a 31-28 loss. I'll be very curious to hear what Andrew's takeaways are, were from that game. Um, you know, it was it was a game that Beavers just flat out should have won. But before I do bring Andrew on, I did want to give some of my thoughts on overall kind of the first two weeks of what we've seen from Oregon State football. The Beavers uh, sitting at 0-2 after home losses to Oklahoma State and, and the Hawaii debacle. I, I can't say that the 0-2 start necessarily surprises me that much because I, I just thought kind of entering the season that both games were going to be fairly difficult. But it's hard not to be a little disappointed with that 0-2 record, just kind of considering how both of those games ultimately did unfold. Uh, starting off with the, the Oklahoma State loss, uh, 52-36, that was a game that really got away from the Beavers, honestly, in the second quarter when their offense just stalled out on a few possessions in a row. Because I, I think most people probably new stops were going to be hard to come by uh, just against a very talented and dynamic Oklahoma State offense and as we saw they certainly were but you know that that really could have been a game there um, at the end if the offense just hadn't gone quiet in the second quarter there were also some signs of life I, I thought from the defense you know you see 52 points allowed and you might think uh, I'm not really sure how well the defense played, but you know, con- considering where the Beavers were a season ago, uh, there there were certainly some positives in that game, particularly the number of tackles for loss Oregon State racked up. But you know, the Cowboys simply just there was just too much firepower against uh, an Oregon State defense that was young and relatively banged up as well, particularly in the secondary. The Hawaii game had to have been <laughs> one of the more bizarre college football games I- I've seen in a while. Because the, the Beavers you know, started things off with touchdowns on, on four of their first trot five drives and looked like they'd be able to run the ball for 400, 450 yards against the Rainbow Warriors. And we saw Oregon State take that 28-21 lead into the break. But somehow the offense, after what was a very productive first half, failed to score a single point in the second half. And Hawaii made just enough plays to eke out that three-point victory. My first takeaway from the Hawaii game I actually, I might have been the minority here, but I actually enjoyed the Facebook Live telecast. I know a lot of people just seeing on Twitter and other social media throughout the week that a lot of people were not happy that the game wasn't on real television. But, you know, for me, the stream actually worked great. And I I thought the announcing crew did a pretty solid job as well. You know, the production quality seemed to be roughly on par with what we get from the Pac-12 network anyway. And and I thought it might have been even a little bit stronger. So, well, you know, it was a little bit interesting and maybe unfortunate the Beavers could not be on actual television. I thought the end result was just fine. As for the game itself, um, the Oregon State defense, you know, was certainly far from perfect in this one. I felt t- took a major step forward. Hawaii over the last couple of years we've seen is a very dangerous offensive team with the run and shoot offense and put up 45 points on Arizona to open the season. The Beavers secondary uh, is still clearly a work in progress, but I thought holding the Rainbow Warriors to 31 points should have been absolutely enough to, to get the job done. I thought the defensive line uh, held up just fine overall. Linebackers, particularly Avery Roberts, played really strong against the run. And uh, I thought they rushed the passer decently well as well. Need to get better in that area. But from what we saw a season ago, it was better. You know, it's also obvious that 
injuries have really taken a toll on the secondary and also more injuries this week as Addison Gums, talented outside linebacker, unfortunately will be out for the season with a torn ACL. Matthew Tago is going to be out for a bit. Andre Hughes-Murray is also, he hasn't played yet. He's going to be missing a, a significant more amount of time. So there's plenty of injuries in the secondary. David Morris, uh, Jalen Moore. I mean, it's the, the injuries really are stacking up. But I think that overall, the defensive unit is playing better. A uh, long way to go. And uh, the secondary, while also, again, has a long way to go. Everyone knows that. But I think they're make, they made a little bit of progress there maybe in the second half. And hopefully, as some of the players come back uh, from injury, that will help bolster the unit. And, you know, it was really kind of as I noted earlier, it was just such a weird offensive game overall but particularly for the Oregon State offense. You know, looking at the stats, the Beavers ran for 263 yards, and it really should have been more, as I thought Jonathan Smith and offensive coordinator Brian Lindgren kind of abandoned the run at times in the second half. Part of that was that Hawaii clearly made some adjustments and was protecting against the run, but still, I thought there were opportunities where Oregon State maybe could have run Jamar Jefferson, even though he might have been a little bit nicked up, run Art Pierce more, maybe put, you know, B.J. Baylor, Calvin Tyler. There are opportunities for Oregon State to run the ball, I thought, that, that maybe they threw too much. And then with, you know, Jake Luton, he, he might have had his worst game as a beaver, honestly. I mean, his touch just kind of seemed off the entire game. I'm not really sure what was going on. And he certainly was locked on to Isaiah Hodgins, something that, that we've definitely seen before, but I don't think quite to the level that we saw in this Hawaii game. Now, part of that could have just been that Luton was hurt by some drops and Hodgins is a very reliable option. But, you know, I, I think that Luton is going to need to spread the ball around a lot more if the Beavers are going to win some games here, you know, moving into Pac-12 play. We'll talk about this uh, a little bit more with Andrew, but I personally didn't really care for the late fourth quarter fake punt call or really the play calling on Oregon State's final drive. I mean, the the fake punt's one of those things where you like to see that the coaching staff is being aggressive and going for the win. I'm just not sure that in that situation that was necessarily the best move to make, but that's kind of just me. From Who am I to second-guess the coaching staff in that specific instance? It's just probably not something I would have done. And then as for the play calling on the final drive, I just thought that maybe they, they could have incorporated a couple more runs, maybe a couple more safe passes. Again, easy to say that now, but... I just wasn't a huge fan of the play calling on that final drive. And then obviously there were some major, major discipline issues. As we saw Caleb Hayes and Gus Lavaca throw punches at different instances, just inexcusable and really embarrassing for the team. You know, Coach Smith announced Monday that both players will miss the first half of this week's Cal Poly game. And I, I certainly think the suspensions were warranted. And hopefully the coaching staff had, you know, a really strong talk with both players about how that kind of at those kind of actions are not acceptable. Um, John Canzano in the Oregonian, he wrote a column Monday about Oregon State, but kind of about football and where where things are going with them and noted that the team just doesn't appear to have an identity at this point and I, I really tend to agree with him on that because to me the the Beavers with under coach Smith and what they're trying to do need to be a, a hard-nosed team that you know runs the football grinds the clock and is opportunistic on defense but through these first two games against Oklahoma State and Hawaii we've only seen that just part of the time and really looking ahead at the next three weeks, the Beavers have some golden opportunities to pick up a couple victories here. They're going to need to find an identity, whatever it is, and play much better to go ahead and pick up those victories. And I, I really am very curious to see how they come out Saturday against Cal Poly. We might see Oregon State lay the hammer down, and we might also see we might see something different. I, I'm not really sure. It'll be It'll be a really big test for the Beavers, I think. All right. Well, now that I've got all that stuff off my chest, let's go ahead and bring on Andrew from KZI. We'll be right back after a quick break here on the Beaver Buzz podcast. From Gill Coliseum to Reeser Stadium, it's the Beaver Buzz with Bob Lundeberg. All right. We're back here on the Beaver Buzz podcast with KEZI sports director Andrew Hobner. Andrew, not sure why it took so long for me to, uh, to get you on the show, but I'm glad we were able to make it work this week. Bob, you caught me on the perfect time back. You know, I got all of this seafood and locomoco <laughs> and Hawaiian food in my belly. I'm ready with the takes. I'm, you know, I'm chomping at the bit now, Bob. I've been hearing about this podcast and listening. I'm ready. I've been like Rocky in the montage, you know. Well, you already let us in on some of it. I wanted to ask you, I guess, how, how was your trip, you know, to and from Oahu and the whole thing? Were, were you able to were you able to fly to Eugene? I guess when when did you finally make it back here? So, 
yeah, so I left early Thursday morning, uh, got out there a little bit early. My welcome to Waikiki moment happened when right across the street from where I was doing my Thursday live shots, two guys stopped a robber. Um, <laughs> and uh, there's like five or six police cruisers that rolled up right next to this apartment building where this guy who robbed someplace down the street was trying to hole up in. And there was like three people that had cornered him. And then the police showed up and I'm sitting across the street with my gear thinking, okay, everyone said Waikiki has a kind of edge to it. I guess this is my welcome to Waikiki moment. But other than that, it was, yeah, yeah, it was, it was interesting, but it's, (laughs) it's a gorgeous place. The people are great. The food is spectacular. I had some great food. Locomoco plates and meat john and all the classic Hawaiian dishes. It was just really good stuff that I you can't really find anywhere else but there. Um, and it was uh, it was a really good trip. It's a shame that the Beavers uh, couldn't respond in kind when uh, Hawaii came out and gave them their best shot. But that's what we're here to discuss, right? Yeah, I, I think it is. And I, I think, you know, at this point, we all kind of know what the story of that game was by now because, you know, the Beavers looked like they were, you know, quite frankly, probably going to run away with that thing, uh, maybe to an easy victory up, what, 28-14 there late in the second quarter. But the offense just kind of vanished, and Hawaii was able to to pull, you know, that victory on a late field goal. So I guess then, Andrew, what, what were your main takeaways from what was, if we're going to be honest, a, a pretty brutal loss for Oregon State and head coach Jonathan Smith? Well, I would say that, yeah, this is a brutal loss because I feel like Jonathan Smith needed this. I mean, this was the return that you were supposed to give fans of last year against Nevada. We lost this year. We are supposed to win. That is that more than any other game on this schedule. I think this was supposed to be the litmus test game for how much this team is progressing because there's a lot of spots in which they don't have Pac-12 talent yet out of litany of positions on the field. But the whole belief was you should be able to beat your G5 opponent this year. If you've gotten marginally better, if you're still at that point where you're maybe a low-end, high-end G5 team, you should beat this Hawaii team, who by all accounts is a good uh, group of five team. They did not do that. And I think that's the biggest takeaway is with only so many games on the schedule that you could look at and say they're winnable. You know, maybe UCLA turns into one of those with the dumpster fire going on down at the Rose bowl. You have to ask where the wins left on the schedule aside from Cal Poly, because I think a lot of people would have figured Hawaii, you could have penciled that in for a possible win this year. So you're looking at a potential season in which you're finishing two and 10 again. And where's the progress and where are you going to judge that progress? If you can't judge it in the non-con where can you judge it now? Uh, and I think that was my biggest takeaway from the night. The other biggest takeaways were Brian Lindgren obviously has left Colorado, but some of Colorado has not left him. Um, <laughs> Colorado fans, you can tell, ask any of them about the time with Brian Lindgren and getting a little bit soft and conservative in play calling with leads was something that him and Mike McIntyre got a little bit of a reputation for when they were in Boulder. And this isn't unique to them. It's not unique to college football. You can look down the road here in Eugene and see that that's exactly how the Ducks lost to Auburn. I mean, coaches just sometimes get into the play not to lose situation, but there was no excuse when the urgency stepped up for them to stay as conservative as they, as they happen to be. Um, And then defensively it's, it is what it is defensively. There's just still such a problem in this secondary of just not having guys that are power five level players at that position. And, and it has shown now in two weeks and you'll probably see it throughout the rest of the season. We'll get in. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned a, a bunch of very important points there. And we'll certainly, we can talk more about Brian Linger in the defense later, but I did want to kind of comment on, on your first point on how this was the game, you know, kind of like a litmus test game, like you said, for Oregon state, because last year, we watched the Beavers go down to Nevada, you know, a decent Nevada team, certainly not a great team by by any measure, but, you know, a very strong, you know, solid bowl level Nevada team. And the Beavers did not play well early, fell behind big. But Jake Luton was able to come back, rally the Beavers back. And once again, much like this Hawaii game was probably a game the Beavers should have won. Much different tale this year at Hawaii where the Beavers kind of get out to that lead. And then the offense sort of fell apart and you see Hawaii come back and is able to make a couple plays late in that game to win. So it's interesting on how you have Nevada and Hawaii, two probably similar, similar level teams, 
the games went in very different ways in terms of in one game, the Beavers fell behind and the other game, the Beavers blew a lead, but yeah, they, they both result in really tough losses. And I do, I think this is just, this was a really, really, really difficult defeat. Like I said earlier for the Beavers, because it just seemed like it was one that just quite frankly got away from them. Totally. And you know, the, Nevada in this game were not analogous by any means, but I would be lying if I saw them trot Jordan Shuker out there in the fourth with the chance to kind yeah. of get things right and went, oh man, this is happening all over again. And I feel for Jordan Shuker in this particular situation because you're basically asking a player who got put into a weird spot mentally after that Nevada kick last season to kind of relive it and then try and boot it from 52. And Jordan's got the leg. I mean, he's mm-hmm. he's not a he's not a bad kicker by any stretch, but it's he got put in a bad situation this time and basically just had to relive the same situation over again. And I feel for him because that time during Nevada could not have been an easy stretch for any player at all with just the reaction and the aftermath that we don't need to dredge up here, but that that happened after that. Um, so that that was one tough thing to just kind of see in the aftermath. The toughest thing of all, though, was just the sideline frustrations, and the injuries. I think lost in this game's you know, story is the players that went out with injury here. Losing Nathan Eldridge in the first half was massive. Losing Addison Gums was even bigger, and your, your heart just bleeds for the kid. After blowing out one ACL at Oklahoma, he comes here and then has a similar injury happen on a different leg. I mean, and you could see it. I mean, he knew it immediately on the field he threw his gloves walking toward the sideline he just had this look on his face that he knew exactly what had just happened to him as he was walking toward the bench even though he was able to kind of walk to the locker room uh at the end of the first half on on his own power but those two guys going down and then Taga went down briefly in the game all those injuries compounded on each other for two players that were transfers in such massive positions for this team it's easy to see where the wheels fell off a little bit, but the loss of composure at the end too. And then the subsequent post-game comments from Jonathan Smith, which I didn't particularly think were all of that, all that strong. And then the, the two analogous suspensions, which I think are totally off base, you know, it, it just, it created a real sour look at the end there. So yeah, let, let's go ahead and talk about the, the, the suspensions and all of that, because that, that certainly is one of the biggest storylines coming out of this game, just the, the lack of discipline in different areas that the Beavers did show. And the biggest area was those, the antics that we saw from Caleb Hayes and Gus Lavaca, who both threw punches at different times in the games. And uh, like I mentioned earlier in the podcast, um, Coach Jonathan Smith announced Monday that both will be suspended for the first half against Cal Poly. I guess for you on the sideline, or did did you get a good live look at either of those incidents? Oh, and I yeah. guess and, and so talk about that and also what was kind of just the general mood then from the team after the game? Because this was clearly such an emotional game, an emotional loss. And on the field, it did not look like the Beavers were handling it particularly well. Yeah, well, you can't forget about the fact that it's not a rivalry, but Nick Rolovich clearly doesn't like Oregon State for the recruiting mm-hmm. stunt that got pulled last year that he put them on blast on Twitter for. I mean, that clearly seeped through to his players because his players, they played with an edge. And I'm not going to sit here and, and absolve Oregon State's players by saying that Hawaii, you know, they played with a certain type of attitude in this one, but you have to be bigger than that moment. So the Caleb Hayes thing, I was right there in the end zone looking toward the 20 when it happened. So The sequence of events is as follows. A Hawaii wide receiver and Caleb Hayes both get into it toward the hash mark. The refs try to get in the middle and start pulling them away. Hayes tries to get back into it with the same player. And then players start pulling Hayes back toward the sideline. Coach Leggy comes over and kind of gives them the come hither, like get over here. You're out for a play to cool off. And he disregards Leggy. And then Avery Roberts and some other players basically start dragging him toward the sideline saying, dude, get off the field. And then Hayes just kind of loses it for a minute. And, and two pieces, Avery Roberts, like he's Chris Childs hitting Kobe Bryant. And then from there, it gets really bad. Then, then people have to restrain Hayes. He gets toward the sideline. I walked toward the sideline about you know, a minute or so after it happened, and I saw – He was sitting there, Caleb Hayes was, towel over his head, Blue Adams is there, just kind of cooling him off and got a smile on his face and saying, you know, hey, you know, it's it's all good, relax. Um, The issue with Gus Lavaca happened because on that final play, the hook, ladder, lateral, 
been on the field type play that Oregon State tried. I think it was AP who had the final possession of the ball, got hit out of bounds on Hawaii's sideline, went down, and Hawaii's sideline erupts because they just won the game. Pierce has some some guys on top of him, like feet kind of in his vicinity. Um, and Lavac is kind of in that same area of the sideline. And I'd imagine something was said, or you just hate to be on a sideline. You know, I, I played high school. It's not the same, but I know where the emotion of that is, where you're on a sideline and the guys around you are erupting because they just beat you. And you're just like, God, get out of my face. You know, it sucks. It, it does. It totally sucks. And yeah. So I, I get where Lavac is com- coming from. That is a momentary lapse of judgment that should not have happened. Jonathan came out in the post game and said, you know, tempers were flaring and those are guys that are emotional and it happens, which I didn't necessarily think was all that strong of a response right out of the gate. You know, you, you got to say something to me along the lines that that's got no place in our program right off the bat. Um, and what I really don't like is equating what happened with these two by giving them the same suspension. Because for Caleb Hayes, to me, it's not about the fact that he hit Avery Roberts. It's about the fact that he disobeyed a coach telling him to get off the field. And if you are going to instill discipline and accountability in your program, yeah, you give the guys each a half for saying you don't throw punches. That's not how we do it. You put Caleb Hayes on another half, so suspend him this entire game coming up against Cal Poly because you got to get the message across that, look, you got one half for punching Avery Roberts. You got another half because you had a coach tell you to get off the field because you needed to relax and you disobeyed one of our coaches. And if you don't send the message, at least in my mind, that the coaches are the word above all on that field, and that's who you have to listen to is, that, then what exactly is, what are you preaching as far as accountability and discipline goes? You know, this is not the Dennis Erickson era anymore. You know, you can't get away with that the way you could with Oregon State players when he was coaching or under Miami or whatever school Dennis Erickson went where trouble inevitably followed on the field. <laughs> that doesn't exist in today's college football world anymore and so I think Jonathan Smith is looking at this and his heart's in the right place it's a teachable moment he sees two players that by all accounts were remorseful for what happened and you know were contrite and apologetic but you have to put your feelings aside and say look I understand that you don't want to do this again but I have to send a message to you and to the other players that you got in trouble for x but you also got in trouble for y and I think that's the thing that's that's being lost in the fact that they both get one half suspensions. I think Caleb Hayes should have gotten an additional half to set the standard that, look, doesn't matter how hard you're playing, doesn't matter how passionate you are, doesn't matter how upset you are at the way this is going. If our coaches give you a directive on the field, you listen to that directive. It is needed with the way the program's at right now because, you know, to tack to the back half of your question, after the game, these guys were frustrated. They were upset. They kept themselves composed in the post game with us, but you know, you heard some cuss words get thrown out at the back end when they were walking back toward the tunnel. I mean, it was clear that they wanted this, that they knew they had it, and that they let it slip away. And if you're not establishing some accountability from a loss like that, then where are you going to get that accountability from? Because you get it from losses, you don't get it from wins. You know, I I can't say that I I disagree with you on the suspensions. I think when that when when it happened, I thought that both of them might get a game. But I, I totally understand what you mean by making Hayes a little bit more significant, especially with the extra information you gave us. But you know, it, sometimes it's tough to question the the coaching staff's decision on things like this when we don't have all the facts. And well, I another, agree. And but and another thing that's interesting to me with with Hayes in particular is that. You're looking at a kid that started basically his entire freshman season at corner and has now been buried on the depth chart. He wasn't really even on the two deep the last two weeks going in. And I'm sure he's been very frustrated by that with the new defensive backs coach. And I think you saw uh, clearly he lost his cool on the field. And maybe it's been a very frustrating couple of months for Caleb Hayes, maybe even longer than that. And it's possible some stuff boiled over, but I, you, you can't make excuses for, for things like that, for, like this. And even with Gus Lavaca, I mean, by all accounts, a really good kid. I've talked to him a couple times. Seems mm-hmm. very nice. I think he was embarrassed by how everything went down. But again, you, you just can't act like that. There's no place for this in major college football. These kids absolutely had to be suspended. And we can quibble over the lengths, I guess. But ultimately, it just the, the, this program right now is in search of an identity. It's in search for so many things. And you just have to have the accountability. And I, just, I don't think that Coach Smith had any choice but to suspend these kids. 
Yeah, I, I don't I don't fault him for the suspensions. And, you know, look, as you mentioned, these coaches, they have to make their decisions the way they do. You know, it's it's like anybody you see in any business. You know, they tell you about a decision that you might look at and go. Mm, but at the same time, it's like, you know what? That's your business. That is your decision to make. And, and the decision you make is the one that we ride with. Um, but I just think that, you know, it it's a two it's a two uh, double edged sword. Excuse me. Um, when it comes to trying to put the feelings aside of a player who you know you want to empathize with, but also having to send that additional message out to the rest of your players that, you know, you can't come in here with a sob story when you behave poorly. You know, we're going we're gonna to teach you. We're not going to throw the book at you and throw you off the team for something like that, but there has to be a consequence for an action like that. And, you know, again, I just think one half might not be enough when you're, having the type of passionate emotional response that Caleb Hayes did, I guess that's how you, you know, rationalize it though, is that it was a passionate emotional response. Yeah. I think we'll go ahead and leave it at that. Then and I guess get back to some of the actual play on the football field, because it was a fascinating game on so many levels. I, I, for, for me, one of, I think one of my big takeaways was I just, I found it so odd that Artavis Pierce particularly didn't get more touches in the second half after, you know, such a terrific first half that he had, you know, we, we all know, and opponents do too, Jamar Jefferson is certainly Oregon State's star and he's going to get the bulk of the touches. And he had a very strong game battling what, what may have been a little bit of an ankle injury too. But I just, I think Pierce needed to have more carries in the second half with what he displayed, the, the electricity he ran with in the first half. I guess what was kind of your opinion on the matter? And did, did you find it odd at all when you were down there watching the game unfold? The Beavers really aren't gaining anything on offense and Art Pierce wasn't in there playing. I, I completely agree with you. It was pretty shocking to me that he wasn't really utilized as much in that second half. You can chalk it up to, you know, saying Hawaii made those adjustments, but at the same time, what exactly were they adjusting to that forces you to not feed Pierce to the level you were in the first half? I mean, his change of back uh, or change of pace uh, concept there as a back was phenomenal in the first half. I think he had seven rushes for 70 yards or something like that. I mean, you know, 71 he, yards. Yeah. yeah. He was electric. He, he, totally. And, and it worked phenomenally with him. And so I don't know. I don't really know how you can quantify what happened there in that second half, because they just totally went away from everything that they had been succeeding with. And I, and I don't know if that was a leave it to the defense to try and, you know, hold them and figure this out. But at the same time, I mean, you could tell there was a frustration on the sidelines early in the first half when the offense kept coming off the field and seeing the defense score. And there, there were some looks on some faces there of like, guys, come on. But it completely flipped in the second half where the defense, you know, is coming off the field. And there are some players that are looking over the offensive bench going, we're making the stops now, guys. You know, what, what is going on here? And I was really surprised with Artavis Pierce not being utilized. I understand that Trayvon Bradford is not in there and that, presents maybe a, a little less of a three-dimensional look in the passing game for Jake Luton. But I, when you have that option and that type of explosive playmaker on the bench and nothing is working for your offense, you, you have to not be so bullheaded about what you're running. And, and I think that is something that Brian Lindgren, as, as well as he does and as well as he did last year with the pieces that he had and in week one, he does kind of get tunnel vision sometimes, at least he did in Colorado with, you know, I have what I have and we're going to run it this way. And if it's not going right, it's simply an execution error and not anything else. Um, and there's more than a few offensive coordinators that fall into that category. But when it's, when something's not working, you have to find out alternatives to make it work. And our Tavis Pierce was a possible solution that they didn't utilize and they deserve at least a measure of criticism for that. And despite all of this, I mean, this was still a tie game at 28, totally. all, you know, midway through deep in, into the fourth quarter. And I, I guess I wanted to ask you, too, about that big, you know, that, that fake punt that's been talked about so much, because I think everyone's had an opinion on it. Just to kind of set it up for the listeners, there's about four minutes left in the game at this point, still tied at 28 all Oregon State facing a fourth and six there at its own 34. The offense essentially done almost nothing for the entire second half. Penalties killed a couple big plays, but you know they, they Beavers kind of got away from the run a little bit. They were throwing a little bit more than maybe I thought they should have. And Jonathan Smith decides to uh, dial up the fake punt there in that situation. 
I guess I, I think uh, and I, I think for me to kind of to the surprise of probably not that many people, you know, punter Daniel Rodriguez, he's a punter after all. Well, he over, overshot his target on what I thought was a pretty low percentage pass. Beavers turn it over on downs and then Hawaii turns that into the game winning field goal. I will admit I'm a person that loves to see aggression from coaching staffs. So I always like it when when coaching staffs, you know, want to want to go for the throat, make big plays, make stuff happen. But for me, I just I did not care for that fake punt, I guess, in that situation. I just didn't think with kind of how the flow of the game was going that that was really the right time to try something like that. I guess what what were your thoughts on what ultimately it's hard to say that was the play that lost Oregon State the game. But that was certainly the play that really helped Hawaii and, and gave Hawaii the big shot to go down and kick that game winning field goal. Yeah, I agree. I think I, I get the psychology behind it. Right. You know, like there is the idea of. You hit that play, all of a sudden your whole sideline is juiced. And in a second half pretty bereft of those moments, in the moments that you did have the sideline get excited for a game-changing potential play, it got negated by a penalty, you know, that would have been the one play to get maybe a spark that could drive you down the field to finish the game off, kick a game-winning chip shot field goal, or just put a touchdown in, uh, away and, and wrap the game up in Honolulu. I get the psychology there. From a tactical perspective, with the defense you have, I know they were making stops at that point, but this is still the same defense you have. And you saw it happen in week zero against Arizona. Like, this is, you know, this is the same Hawaii team that they'll torch you if you're not playing sound, you know, all the way through. And, and I, I get you, you look at the situation, maybe you look at how shaky their kicker was the entire game and say, all right, maybe you, law of averages here and he'll you know he'll he'll chip another one too far to the left and he'll miss but man with the defense they have to have that level of trust to put it in their hands with a short field I think is uh is something interesting you could punt give them the long field where you know that they've been playing decently well when Hawaii was backed into their own territory I just yeah I I'm I don't really I don't get it in that particular situation. Like I said, I get the psychology of it, but psychology doesn't win football games. It's the tactics that you have on the field. And I, I, I didn't see it from there. Yeah. I, the, yeah, I, I have to agree with you. And, and still though, I mean, the Beavers get the ball back at their own 35 after all of that with about two minutes left. Hawaii's kicker mentioned he'd struggled, missed a couple kicks early in the game. He does convert that field goal to put Hawaii up, but then he drills the kickoff right out of bounds. Mm-hmm. And, and the final final Oregon State drive with six Jake Luton passes. He completed the first three as the Beavers, you know, marched right down the field to get to the 34, but then his next three attempts fell incomplete. Shuker, as we all know, he missed that 52-yard field goal with about a minute left that would have tied the game. And when when Shuker did miss that kick, Oregon State still had all three of its timeouts, didn't use any of them on the drive. And that's something that I can think is pretty easy to criticize in hindsight. Um, and even saying that it just, to me, it felt like it it was such a mistake in that moment on that drive for Oregon state to, to not maybe run the ball once or twice, kind of once they got into field goal range, just because, you know, I, I think with the amount of time that was on the clock with the timeouts, I, I think, and also Jamar Jefferson, Artavis Pierce, like we mentioned, those are two of Oregon state's best options. We saw the Beavers were run blocking fairly well. I just, I think I would have liked to have seen a couple running plays on that final drive. I, what, what I, for you, when you were on the sidelines, what were you kind of thinking in that final moment as the Beavers were dialing up passes once they were, you know, finally down in field goal range, instead of maybe turning around and handing the ball off to the running backs to try to maybe make that an easier kick for Shukar or maybe pop a longer run and, and maybe even pop that in for a touchdown. Well, that's, that's kind of what I was curious about as, as they were coming down the field in the moment, I was thinking, boy, they got an awful lot of time here and they got a lot of, and they got all their timeouts, you know, they're, they're playing like they got 30 seconds left. Uh, you know, I, I was, I was kind of surprised with it. What it didn't seem like urgency. It almost seemed like a tightness to it. Like, you know, we gotta, we gotta get this off. We gotta go. Um, and I, it was, and, and in hindsight, it looks worse because it's like, okay, You've got Hawaii playing pass on basically every single one of these plays. I mean, at no point watching the replay did it look like Hawaii was really respecting Oregon State trying to go run. And it's like, man, like a draw play, 
you know, a, a third and set, set up a third and short and throw a screen. I, I mean, none of those plays kind of crossed their minds at all. Not even getting AP in there, which would have been the time to do it. You know, I, I, I hate fly sweeps and jet sweeps and pressure situations, honestly. But even like even something with B.J. Baylor or Ty John Lindsay there, right? That, you know, just to change the look and keep them guessing a little bit, because I don't think there was anyone in the stadium that didn't think that they were going to pass all the way down the field. Now, there's one thing that I do wonder, and I, I doubt we'll ever get the real answer for what the thought was, was if they were going for the winner, they were going to try and push it into OT. How much of that was about setting up a potential shoe care kick once it became apparent that they ended up on first or second down, you know, with, with some time winding down, you know, I, every coach, Every coach obviously wants to go for the win, but I'm curious if there were, if there was some consideration to, okay, we'll put it in a spot where he feels comfortable to kick um, and, and we're just going to set it up there for him. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question, but it, it was pretty bad at the time. It's awfully inexplicable now that there was no, that those timeouts did not get used was the most surprising thing because at the very worst you get a chip shot field goal or the 52 yarder if nothing goes if, if those three runs don't go anywhere but you you at least afford yourself the potential for three or four extra plays on that drive if you use your timeouts the right way so you end up with yeah at worst a field goal at best a touchdown and and you can either push it to ot or walk away with the game i i don't i don't really understand the logic of not utilizing what you have because i know there's coaches that would kill for timeouts in that situation that they didn't use the play calling to me almost suggested that once they got into field goal range that they almost were thinking whether this is going to be a 52 yard attempt a 42 yard attempt a 37 yard attempt it was almost as if they didn't think that the distance really mattered that was shoe care because you know he has had some struggles in his career that they were thinking that maybe even getting closer wasn't going to be that big of a deal. So it was almost as if, to me, once they did get on the edge of Shukur, of Shukar's range, that they were just going for the win at that point, which I just found to be somewhat of an interesting strategy. Not that I have any problem with trying to get the ball into the end zone, obviously, but it was just more about... The, it was really the play calling once they were down there. I just felt that those three incomplete passes that you threw with Luton once you're on the edge of field goal range, I just felt that they did... Uh, Shukara disservice because even getting a, a few yards there on one of those plays after you know taking and failing on one of the deep shots, I just think that would have made that a much more makeable kick. I just, I, I really, and then and as we've already talked about, having three timeouts on top of all of that, all, all on top of it all, is just a very interesting situation. I think if you were to truly ask Coach Smith and Coach Lindgren, I, I think they would probably they would probably do that final drive a little differently if they were to have an opportunity to do it over again. I, I would agree with you. And I think the other thing too is it's poor clock management, at least in my understanding, because Hawaii still has the offense they have. They still have the weapons they have in the passing game and you still have the secondary you do. Even if he had kicked that field goal, there was still time for Hawaii to go and take shots to get themselves back into field goal range if you had an ensuing kickoff there and what are you going to use those timeouts for if you're Oregon state to give Hawaii a chance to set themselves up to, to run it back on you and, and get either a game winning field goal or a game winning touchdown. What are you saving those timeouts for? I don't understand where that is as far as, um, as far as where you're, how you're managing the game goes, you know, you had, you had chance after chance there to just kind of, get in closer. And I will say this, I, I watched Jordan in warmups and he looked great from long. He did. Um, he was clearly very comfortable out there when he was kicking in warmups and he looked comfortable kicking, you know, in the, in his extra points and his PATs. I mean, it didn't look shaky in the slightest. So maybe, maybe you're looking at it and saying, Oh, well, you know, he's got a huge leg and he's, and he feels comfortable from out there. Maybe we feel a little bit more. Okay. If we don't get a deep shot there, but Man, I uh, that's that's one of those things that is a second year coach mistake who's still learning, you know, and I think that's the particularly hard thing for for Beaver fans to swallow here is that for all the pedigree that Jonathan Smith came in for, he's still a second year head coach at the end of the day. 
And so you're going to get these coaching hiccups. You know, this is a staff that doesn't have any head coaches, to my understanding, on it, any former head coaches on it. You know, Mike Riley's not here advising, you know, anyone anymore. And so there's not a there's there's not a maturity to this, I guess, that you get with maybe a more seasoned coach and even a more seasoned coach. You come down and look at Mario Cristobal. I mean, he got dragged over the coals for his late game management against Auburn. That guy's in his second head coaching job. You know, coaches, coaches will still learn and coaches will still make these mistakes. But Jonathan Smith, people have to remember before they start saying that this experiment has failed. He's in year two of being a head coach ever. So this kind of stuff's going to happen. If he learns from the mistakes, then, you know, you hang your hat and say, look, that loss happened, but it's something that he eventually learned from and got better with. It's if there's still a same stubbornness to doing it a certain way that comes up, then you have a problem. But I'm not going to rake Smith over the coals for what looked like really a rookie-ish mistake. No, and I, I don't think you can. It's a very fair point to mention. We are, we are now 14, we are just 14 games into this Jonathan Smith era. And I, I think on one hand, you can mention that, you know, the 0-2 start to this season is super disappointing. I mean, the offense maybe isn't quite as good as some people expected, and the defense is still problematic for sure. But then, you know, on the other hand, this is still a really young, inexperienced team and coaching staff, you know, with Jonathan Smith at the helm. And the Beavers are clearly at least going to be a very competitive team. It's possible Oklahoma State is going to threaten, you know, the top teams in the Big 12. I think Hawaii it is at least a very solid um, Mountain West Conference school. And then also, if you look at Oregon State's upcoming schedule, the next three games are all potential victories in Cal Poly, Stanford, which is in the middle of just a brutal stretch to open the season, and this UCLA team where I don't think any of us have any idea where they're going right now under Chip Kelly. So I, I think you could make the argument that Beaver fans could still be optimistic about the rest of the season, but you know, you could also make the, the argument that they should maybe be a little bit pessimistic, but I think it's definitely very, very early. We should in, in no way should anyone be saying, Oh, this coaching staff needs to be uh, turned over. Jonathan Smith needs to make tons of changes or even Jonathan Smith needs to be changed. Any of that is so way too early. We're just, they we need to see a lot more football from this coaching staff as a whole before any decisions like that are even considered. I totally agree. And I think that extends to Jake Luton too. I know a lot of people are like, mm -hmm. you know, he's a six year senior. He should be better. You know, you're going to run Jebbia off. I, I don't buy into any of that. I, I fell into this same trap as a Colorado fan of my alma mater at CU doing the same thing in the first half of the Nebraska game saying, <laughs> Steven Mont you got to bench Steven Montez for at least a drive because the kid's not, just not in it right now. And what did Steven Montez do? We turned it around and, you know, we all saw what happened when Colorado beat Nebraska this weekend. Jake Luton's ceiling is bringing you back from 28 down on the road in the Pac-12 to go beat a, a Colorado team that by all accounts was better than what the record was last year. Definitely. You know, that's, that's what Jake Luton's ceiling is. And he is a college quarterback. You know, this idea that everyone is supposed to look like Trevor Lawrence is absurd. Justin Herbert has his inconsistent moments. Steven Montez has his inconsistent moments. Jake Luton has his inconsistent moments. And Tristan Jevia, obviously, I, I don't think expected for there to be a medical redshirt year for for Luton and that this would kind of be his show. But look, if he didn't beat out Jake Luton for the starting role, there's something to that. You know, Tyler Shuck, if he was better than Justin Herbert, Tyler Shuck would play. If Tristan Jevia was better than Jake Luton, Tristan Jevia would have played. And we saw it against Oklahoma State. He played decent in the drive he was in. He didn't light the world on fire. That made any, everyone think, oh, my God, I can't believe that this kid's sitting on our bench. And he was playing against the twos of Oklahoma State. He's right where he needs to be right now, as is Jake Luton. He's right where he needs to be as well. I think the only person that I'm looking at with a relatively critical eye is Tim Tibisar. Because schematically, something's just not working. The athletes, I understand, are, are not there right now especially in the secondary but there is something fundamental defensively that's not working and I, and I can't quite put my finger on it right now and I have to watch a few more games but there's just something that to me looks off because it shouldn't be this bad 
This is this is not a G five team. This is not a this is not UConn. I mean, like they they have played bad, but it should not be this bad. There's not terrible athletes on that side of the defense. That that it is that it's it's supposed to look more like the second half against Hawaii as opposed to the three halves that we saw to open up the season. I, I'm I, he's someone that's worth looking at. Maybe a slightly critical eye, but I, I think everyone else there is a lot of reason and cause to just be patient. And look, Jonathan Smith is not Chris Peterson, and I think he unfairly gets stacked that way because of how good Washington was when the two of them were together. It's pretty obvious how much Chris Peterson misses him. If you look at what that Washington offense has been for the past year and a half, my goodness. Um, but, yeah, totally. But, and John, but Jonathan Smith, I think, you know, this is Oregon State. It's not UCLA. He's not Chip Kelly. This change is not going to happen overnight. And I know people say, well, you end up three, four years in and you still haven't seen results. Yeah, then you can talk about if the experiment is not going right. But yeah, this is a long rebuild in a program that is not historically dominant, that has had good results in the past two decades, but it's going to take a while in not so fertile recruiting ground in a place that is not, you know, cosmopolitan L.A., um, or or San Francisco or anything like that where the rebuild can kind of be accelerated. This is going to take a lot of growing pains, and it's going to take some time, but there has to be some faith in Jonathan Smith. I, to, to get you out of here, I did want to ask you about your Colorado Buffaloes that you already mentioned a little bit, but, man, that was that comeback on Saturday. I could not believe it because they looked absolutely dead and buried there in, in the first half. I mean, is that – Honestly, was that the biggest win for the Pac-12 so far in non-conference play? I mean, holy cow. I mean, the Mel Tucker era, I, I had no idea this was going to get off to such a good start. Well, I'll answer your question with a question to start. What does the N in Nebraska stand for? Oh, no. What? Knowledge. <laughs> Knowledge. <laughs> it, man, the, the Mel Tucker era has started off great. Look, I think, I think people are buying in a little bit too much on Colorado because, look, that secondary is like Oregon State secondary. It is it's yeah. bad. It's bad. And Nebraska, I think, was a bit of a paper tiger. I think people bought into the Scott Frost hype a little bit too much. I, I still think that that program is a year away. And it's kind of Tennessee-ish in the sense that it's coasting off of some really old prestige when that program has not done much in about 15 years. And Lincoln, recruiting to Lincoln now, is not what recruiting to Lincoln 25 years ago in the Tom Osborne era looked like. So there's inherent built-in challenges that you have at Nebraska now that you don't. So I thought it, that's a bit overrated of a program and of a win, if we're being completely honest. Colorado showed great fight in it, but I don't think it's the biggest – well, I don't know, actually. Who is, who is I, the biggest Pac-12? I don't really, <laughs> yeah, that's the thing is yeah. I don't really, at this point, I don't know what's, I mean, the Pac-12 certainly will have opportunities to eclipse this win. But, I mean, Nebraska is a really trendy pick to win its division in the Big Ten. And, I mean, Colorado, I think very few people were thinking Colorado was going to do anything this season. I mean, and again, I know Colorado State isn't exactly the, the greatest team in the world. But, you know, the offense for Colorado certainly looked great in that game. And then coming back, I, I don't care that it might have been a bit of an overrated Nebraska team. I still think that was a really impressive victory, and it was big for the Pac-12. I honestly oh, believe it was. Well, it was huge for Colorado especially. I mean, that's that's your you want your return on investment game for what Mel Tucker preaches. Under Mike McIntyre, that team folds and loses by 35. There's no doubt in my mind. I mean, there's, there is a certain type of fight and a toughness that Mel Tucker brings from Georgia and from his NFL experience that Colorado has not had in a while that they – need now and a win like that galvanizes that program the people in it the students most importantly to say wow you know a that that rivalry with nebraska is something tangible that we can see and feel again it's not an old rivalry anymore and also it's something that you can look at the program and say yeah that's a prestige win you're right there's other opportunities down the road but you know now that i'm thinking about it i i think you're right bob i think that probably is the biggest win considering fresno state's not going to be the 10 and 2 team that they were last year and UCLA got that one win. I mean, uh, Stanford over Northwestern, maybe Northwestern is another eight. Maybe. There, yeah, there hasn't been much uh, for the Pac-12 right now. And I'd even say Auburn is, they're not looking all that spectacular either. I mean, they only beat, I forget who it was, Tulsa or Tulane or something, 24 to 6. So they didn't look particularly great. The Pac-12 basically, they're in trouble. I mean, it Utah 
Oregon and now USC with uh, Sam Darnold Light and Keaton Slovis needs one of those three teams to run the table to like one loss only to get to that Pac-12 title. And you need you need USC to beat Notre Dame. That those are the those are the two things that need to happen for the conference prestige, I think, to kind of get back to a place of somewhat respectability. Beating Nebraska definitely helped though. Those are the kind <laughs> of games the Pac-12 has to win. And they did. Absolutely. Andrew, thanks so much uh, for joining the show. We'll have to, uh, we'll definitely have to do this again later on in the football season. Yeah, Bob, this was a ton of fun. Always let me know. I'll have to return the favor and get you on our pod sometime. <laughs> Deal. Well, thanks again to Andrew Hobner, and I'm going to take uh, one last break and uh, come back with a final segment to wrap up today's show. From Guild Coliseum to Reeser Stadium, it's the Beaver Buzz with Bob Lundeberg. All right. Well, looking ahead briefly to Cal Poly on Saturday, and this just or this is a game that Oregon State, I, I think, really needs to put the hammer down because the the Mustangs. It's looking like it's going to be a bit of a rebuilding year for those guys, sitting at one and one entering the game. And Cal Poly is a triple option offense. It's going to really, you know, use deception and, and try to run the ball against the Beavers. And, and quite frankly, I think Oregon State's defense is going to have to, you know, no matter how many are out due to injury, will be able to control the line of scrimmage here and I think this is a game where the Beavers are just going to need to show that they have superior Pac-12 caliber athletes and really shut down Cal Poly's run and I think if the Beavers are able to do that I I highly doubt that the Mustangs are going to be able to score enough points to compete in this game and you know from an offensive perspective I think it's really just all about trying to get kind of the mojo back a little bit because like Andrew and I talked about there's no sugarcoating Oregon State second half against Hawaii it it wasn't good. The Beavers couldn't really run the ball as effectively as they needed to. And for whatever reason, Jake Luton just didn't have his best game. But I have a pretty good feeling that the six-year quarterback is going to bounce back in a, in a big way here Saturday. So this really shouldn't be a, a game I don't think that Oregon State's going to need to sweat. It, it's going to be one that I think the Beavers need to get up to a big lead and really just kind of put Cal Poly away. The line is currently Oregon State favored by 17. And, and really, I think the Beavers should win by three four five touchdowns pretty comfortably setting themselves up for you know a, a bye week and what's going to be a really really interesting matchup September 28th against Stanford because the Cardinal have played just a, a brutal brutal stretch of games to open the season and that's really going to be kind of their only light test in the first six so I just I don't see how that would be anything other than a trap game for the Cardinal and if the Beavers could beat the Cardinal and then go down to UCLA and improve to three and two after a zero and two start. Uh, that would be really big for the momentum heading into the rest of the season. Uh, I'm in no way predicting you know the Beavers are going to bounce back from this zero and two start and claw their way to five wins and bowl, bowl eligibility or anything. But you know at this point in time, it's just all about kind of the little vic- victories and showing progress on a week to week basis for Jonathan Smith and staff. And I think we're going to definitely see a lot of that progress this weekend. Thanks again for tuning in to the Beaver Buzz podcast, part of the ThatCast podcast network. I will be back probably next Tuesday with another episode to talk about the Cal Poly game. I expect to be talking about a win over Cal Poly, but I guess you do never know. Um, Anyway, thanks for tuning in and we will talk to you guys again next week.